0: And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. I'll bet as you were heading to church this morning, you were probably thinking, I hope we talk about politics this morning. (laughs) And guess what? That's what we're going to talk about. I'm so excited. Actually, I'm not. But... uh, I'm not excited about politics, I'm excited about uh, our Savior and uh, the impact that he has on our life as it relates to politics, but that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 25. Certainty in a world of doubt, we're racing our way to the end of this book, also to the end of this year, Jesus in politics, what we're talking about. This morning, a year ago, right after the presidential election, we were celebrating Thanksgiving, gathering with family. Some had traveled from out of town. And the very first thing one of my relatives said to me when we kind of greeted there at the door in a very angry, defensive tone of voice is... I can't believe that a Christian would vote for this particular candidate. And I responded with a smile and said, great to see you. (laughs) How was your trip? How are you guys doing? And neither did I or he bring up the topic again. I didn't think it was an appropriate time or place to discuss politics, but here's some questions for you. You don't need to answer these out loud. These are the questions we're gonna answer in this study here today. Why are politics such a hot topic? Why are politics such a hot topic? Is it possible to take politics too seriously? What do you guys think? (laughs) No kidding. I mean, just if you live in America, you know that. And then what is the relationship between church and state? What are Jesus's politics? Have you ever asked that question? And then as a follower of Christ, what should be my politics? That's even, uh, that's an important question too. So here's here's where we're headed with this study. This is what you're gonna see, that in our text, Jesus gives us a paradoxical, a powerful, and a personal answer to those questions. In the paradoxical answer that he gives to us, it helps us with our actions in relationship to politics. And the powerful answer that he gives us, it helps us with our attitude, (laughs) our attitude about politics. And the personal answer that he gives us is really what transforms our actions and attitudes in relationship to politics. So that's where we're headed. So let's begin with prayer. We need a lot of prayer on this topic. And some of you need it more than others, okay? Okay. And so we're going to pray and then we will uh, read through our text and then unpack these notes. So God, we are delighted to be here this weekend today to celebrate your goodness, your love, your grace, your greatness in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And there is no doubt that American politics is very volatile and venomous and the news outlets for the most part seem to be very biased, and our tendency is to be unengaged or to be outraged because we tend to try to get from politics what we should be getting from you. And so we pray through the study of your holy word and the work of your Holy Spirit that we would learn how to be not, not unengaged or, or outraged, but to be engaged engaged with our culture, motivated by the gospel, balanced biblically, knowing that regardless of what happens politically, that you are the most high God that rules the kingdom of men, Daniel 4.25, and that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, Job 42.2. We pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said, amen. So let me begin reading. This is chapter 23, starting at verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him to Pilate. Who's the company of them? This is the Sanhedrin. They brought Jesus before the Sanhedrin for a trial. They've accused him, really, of blasphemy. They want to murder him, but they can't do that. So they bring him before the political leaders. Verse 2, and they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Part of this is, um, this is a dogmatic assertion. It's not, and you're going to see this isn't really a a defensible argument because uh, here's Here's verse 3 is one of the keys to this paradoxical answer that Jesus gives us. And Pilate asked him, Jesus, he's asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. So that's, that's his paradoxical answer helping us with our political actions. Then Pilate said to the chief priest and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. So they're making these dogmatic assertions. They don't have really any defensible arguments. And you need to know that. You need to keep that in mind. There's a difference between dogmatic assertions and defensible arguments. Pilate sees that. And so when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Now, verses 9, 10, and 11 give us really the the next answer to these political questions. Jesus gives us that by how he responds here. And uh, this is the uh, powerful answer, helping us with our attitude. And he said, so he, he questioned him. So Herod is questioning Jesus at some length. But notice Jesus' response. He made no answer. But notice the contrast here. So Jesus isn't saying anything. And then in verse 10, the chief priest and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, mudslinging coming after him, attacking him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. So there's the powerful answer, helps us with our political attitude. We'll get to that in our notes. We'll unpack that. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate and Herod, and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Isn't it interesting? I mean, this, you can tell this is a totalitarian government, kind of a dictatorship of, of sorts, because they're going to still punish him. I, I have no, I'm just going to punish him and I'll release him. I'll please you in all of this, and but notice the crowd. They're continuing to attack him. Now, now by the way. When you're dealing with politics, when you're dealing with anything, there's a difference between attacking the problem and attacking the person. You guys know the difference? And so you, you, so as you kind of walk through politics and as you work through that, so there's, there's the difference between dogmatic assertions, defensible arguments, and then attacking... Attacking the person versus attacking the problem. They're attacking Jesus. They're attacking the person. There's no strong arguments against him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, designed to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Now, this last verse in our text here this morning gives us the personal answer that Jesus uh, that we see in our text as demonstrated in the life of Christ here. And this is the transformation of our actions and attitudes. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will to be, to be crucified. This is God's word. So let's talk about this. What are Jesus' politics? First of all, paradoxical answer deals with our actions. Verse 3, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Sounds a little ambiguous, but as you dive into it and think about it a little bit more, it's actually very paradoxical. This is not a theological question at all. Are you the predicted Messiah from long ago? That's not what uh, Pilate is asking. (laughs) Pilate doesn't care about that. Are you in any shape or form a political leader? Will your movement have any political implications is really what he's asking. Will you have any impact on my political power? That's all he cares about. Now, Jesus is is very paradoxical in his answer. In front of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, he's very clear in Luke 22, 67 through 69. We saw that last last week. And yet, Jesus responds to Pilate in verse 3, you have said so. You have said so. It's not a denial or an affirmation, or put it another way, it's both a denial and an affirmation. Because Jesus could have said, no, I'm a spiritual leader, and all I do is give people spiritual peace, love, and joy. What I'm doing will have no impact on the political order. But he doesn't say that. On the other hand, he doesn't say, yes, of course I'm a political leader, and I'm here to take over. To establish my kingdom. He didn't say that either. The answer is both yes and no. And if, if you ask Buddha, are you a political leader? The answer is clear, no. If you ask Muhammad, are you a political leader? The answer is clear, yes. If you ask Jesus, are you a political leader? The answer is clear, yes and no. Now, let me explain that to you because it's in your, your next uh, point on your notes, fill in the blank. Here's what he's saying, and I think this is a really important point. I'm going to tie another statement that Jesus made as it relates to politics to this. Politics are important, but not the most important. That's your fill in the blank, by the way. So, politics are important, but not the most important. Luke uh, 20, 22 through 25. Remember when the Pharisees, the religious leaders were trying to trap Jesus, and they were trying to trap him by asking him if we should pay taxes. You guys remember the story? You guys know what I'm talking about? Yep. And so should we pay taxes? Remember how what Jesus responded? How he responded, give me a denarius. He says, whose image is on the denarius? And it says Caesar. Okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Oh, by the way, whose image is on you? God, give to God what is God's. That's really what he said. Very profound, very profound answer. And what he's saying, and, I, and I've kind of coined the phrase, so to speak, is that he's wanting us to, to, when it comes to politics, have honorable accountability. In other words, we are to honor authority, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Government is, is God's gift after the fall to put a halt on sin. Romans 13:1 through 7 makes that clear. But hold authority accountable. Honor authority But hold authority accountable and to God the things that are God's. Don't be passive about politics because they play an important role. Pray, vote, support God honoring laws is really what he's saying here. But don't make politics the highest priority because government is not the answer to all of our problems. So that's why he's, he's so somewhat ambiguous, and yet I believe he's being very paradoxical. It's a paradoxical answer for us. Here's the next point on your notes. Don't disobey civil government except, of course, when they compel us to disobey God's word. That's, that's part of that principle that Jesus wants us to live by. Acts 5.29 makes that very clear with the uh, first century church, the early church. Uh, should we... Should we obey you or should we obey the religious leaders? They're talking about the religious leaders. Should we obey you or should we obey God? Well, the obvious answer is ultimately we should obey God. Now, we are to subject ourselves to it to the authority of government. And I gave you a whole slew of verses to give you proof of that. Romans 13, 1-7, Titus 3, 1-2, 1 Peter 2, 13-17. You can study those on your own. So we are to subject ourselves to it and pray for rulers and authorities so that, so that we might live a peaceful life. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2 makes that clear. So what is the role and the purpose of government? I put that down in your notes. The role and purpose of government is order, Justice, virtue, and prosperity. Now, let me give you an example of uh, this idea of don't disobey civil government except, of course, when they compel us to disobey God's word probably a a real good example. There's there's plenty of examples, but one good example is Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. He was in jail because he was doing civil disobedience. He was protesting segregation in the South by disobeying the laws and and peacefully, he was doing that peacefully and, and, and he went to jail over that. And a lot of people and many even white ministers said, how dare you do civil disobedience. If you're a Christian, you should be law-abiding citizen. You shouldn't question the government. You shouldn't do that. Martin Luther King Jr. responded in his letter by saying this, and I quote, One may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and Unjust. Well, how does one determine whether a law is just or unjust, you ask? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the law of God. He's, talking, he's, he's appealing to that higher authority. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law of God. So in his letter, Martin Luther King, Jr. goes on to say, one who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I like that. I think it's good. Now, here's your next, next point on your notes. So we're still talking about this idea of uh, this is the paradoxical answer. Politics are important, but not the most important and um, here's the next point. It is an act of loving our neighbor, Matthew twenty-two, thirty-nine. 39, to vote for politicians and laws that promote biblical values. And why is that? Why is it an act of love? It is, a, it is a way that we love our neighbors to vote for politicians and laws that promote biblical values. We do a monthly leadership development and training uh, here at Desert Breeze, usually the first uh, Sunday of every month. It's usually over in the youth room. And uh, this last month, uh, one of the speakers that we had was a counselor that attends Desert Breeze, uh, Carolyn Newsom. Her husband, Brian Newsom, is part of our board of elders here. And uh, she was asked really a good question uh, because she came in and talked about suicide and how to respond to people that are or struggling with suicide, and the question was asked her, why is, why is this, uh, our culture, our community so busted up and so broken up? In other words, why mass shootings, and why suicide, and why all the, the stuff that's going on? And she answered very profoundly, and, and also very biblically, she said, it's because of the breakdown of the home and she because the and i agree with that all you need to do is go back to genesis genesis chapters 1 and 2 god established the marriage to be a safe place to raise kids and in that safe place kids grow up and love god and love people and out of that environment they go out and they become uh, great citizens within a community. But as the, as the marriage goes, so goes the family. As the family goes, so goes society. And we see that breakdown happening in our culture today. That's why I believe that it is an act of loving our neighbor to vote for politicians and laws that promote biblical values. See, a strong family is fundamental to the survival of society. And Christians should work for its legal protection and promotion, and prosperity, that's what we should do. Even if people disagree with us. And um, I mean, let me, let me, you guys know this, let me level with you. Why, does, why did God give us the 10 Commandments? Was it because he's gonna try to make it hard on us? Does he not like us or something? I mean, oh my goodness, I can't believe he would give us this list of rules. How about this? It's part of his character, and it's from his amazing love and wisdom. That's why. And so anytime you create a culture that's based on the Ten Commandments, you're going to have a good, solid, flourishing community and culture. just makes sense. just makes sense. So that's what we stand for. And we know that there's going to be people that are going to go against that, and they're going to be very adversarial and they're not gonna like that. We understand that, but, but here's the next point on your notes. Avoid partisan politics, stand up for the truth, but do it with gentleness and respect. That should be our attitude, but do it with gentleness and respect. I gave you another slew of verses there. You can study these on, on your own. Our, our, our guy Daniel, remember Book of Daniel, Old Testament? He did that, I mean, Daniel 2.14. Acts 26, we see Paul doing that, Titus 3, 1 through 2, Colossians 4, 5 and 6, 1 Peter 2, 17, and then 1 Peter 3, 50, it says, uh, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. I love it. Now, turn to the person next to you and see if they even know what what it means, partisan politics, okay? What in the world is partisan politics? We're saying avoid partisan politics. Real quick, do that. Okay, partisan politics is is voting party-line, regardless of what that party might believe in. Don't do that, don't do that. Well, I'm this, or I'm that, or no. You gotta look at the issues that they stand for. You gotta look for what they represent. And uh, you're gonna see it in, in, in all the different parties, that there's parts of Christianity in all of them. They're gonna be scattered out. Some might lean more towards Christians than others. You've gotta figure that out. But avoid partisan politics, stand up for the truth, but do it with gentleness and respect. Do not become enemies, we do not wanna become enemies of the very people we seek to win to Christ, our potential brothers and sisters in the Lord. One of the reasons why I wouldn't argue with my relative uh, because he, he would come at me like that is because I want him to know Jesus. That's first and foremost. There's a much deeper issue here. It's a much deeper issue. I want him to, to know Christ. I'm going to talk about bigger things than politics, more important things than politics. And, um, and that's why I didn't get in, into that with him. Now, now, why, do, why does our attitude get so twisted and out of shape as it relates to politics? And let, me, let me read to you, and this is from, uh, because what we're going to do now is we're going to transition now to our attitude So avoid partisan politics, stand up for the truth, but do it with gentleness and respect. So we're going to go from that's how we should behave, that's our actions, now we're going to look at our attitude. Why does our attitude get so poisoned when it comes to politics? I see Christians post and say some really, really hateful things. Now why is that? Let me explain to you, and they're not the only ones that say hateful things. But There's a lot of hatefulness going on out there. But I love what uh, Timothy Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods, in a section where he talks about the signs of political idolatry. And that's what it is. It's it's political idolatry. And he's going to explain what idolatry is at the front end of this. So let me read. One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of the chief characteristics of life. When we center our lives on the idol... We're talking politics here, but it can be anything. When we center our lives on the idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit God is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We do not say, what a shame, how difficult, but rather, this is the end. There's no hope. This may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. When either party wins an election, a certain percentage of the losing side talks openly about leaving the country. (laughs) I mean, that's true. They become agitated and fearful for the future. Now, listen, this is what he's, and this is really important. They have put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once was reserved for God and the work of the gospel. It's, a, it's misplaced hope, it's misplaced security, it's idolatry. When their political leaders are out of power, they experience a death. They believe that if their policies and people are not in power, everything will fall apart. They refuse to admit how much agreement they actually have with the other party, and instead focus on the points of disagreement. The points of contention overshadow everything else, and a poisonous environment is created. That's American politics. Is it poisonous or what? It's out of control, it's crazy, it's adversarial. And I see Christians get right in the middle of all of that. Now here's another sign of idolatry in our politics is that opponents are not considered to be simply mistaken, but to be evil. After the last presidential election, my 84-year-old mother observed, it used to be that whoever was elected as your president, even if he wasn't the one you voted for, he was still your president. That doesn't seem to be the case any longer. After each election, there is now a significant number of people who see the incoming president lacking moral legitimacy. It just happened with this last election. The increasing political polarization and bitterness we see in U.S. politics today is a sign that we have made political activism into a form of religion. How does idolatry produce fear and demonization? Now he quotes from a guy and I, you're going to have to listen because it's, it's a little bit hard to understand. He's a Dutch-Canadian philosopher Al Walters. Listen to what he says, because he's, asking, he's answering the question, "How does idolatry? How does idolatry produce fear and demonization? in us. Those are the two characteristics of of idolatry. And this Dutch-Canadian philosopher, Al Walters, taught that in the biblical view of things, the main problem in life is sin, and the only solution is God and His grace. The alternative to this view So we're talking about putting our hope in something else. The alternative to this view is to identify something besides sin as the main problem with the world and something besides God as the main remedy. That demonizes something that is not completely bad, and it makes an idol out of something that cannot be ultimate good. And so he goes on and explains more of that. I think that drives the point home. So let's talk about our attitude now, and I think that... There's a good, uh, Jesus gives us really a powerful answer as it relates to our attitude, verses 9 through 11. So he questioned him at some length, that's Herod, but he made no answer. Jesus made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Now, I need to tie another section of Scripture in here uh, because I think that uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, verse 15, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, gives us a little bit more insight than what Luke gives us. And so let me read that to you because Pilate... Um, It's talking about Pilate. And the chief priest accused him of many things. So they're attacking Jesus, making dogmatic assertions. And Pilate again asked Jesus, him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed Pilate was amazed at how Jesus didn't didn't get into the fray of mudslinging like the the scribes and the Pharisees were getting into and attacking Jesus, and yet he wasn't attacking him back. In, in In other words, he was amazed because why aren't you fighting back? Jesus made no reply and Pilate was amazed. The word amazed here is a positive word, the connotation of wonder and marvel. Pilate saw the contrast between Jesus and his enemies Okay, track with me here. you got to understand this. Human political power is defined by coercion and self-promotion. Coercion, yeah, intimidation, bullying, and and oppression. And self-promotion, yeah, don't admit weaknesses, spin-doctoring, and media manipulation. That's our culture. And yet Jesus is showing us that real power is not coercion, but changing people from the inside out, and not self-promotion, but self-emptying for the sake of others, That's what the contrast is being made. So, on one hand, his enemies are fearful he was going to get off, and yet Jesus is very calm. On the other hand, they were using their power to harm him, and Jesus is laying down his power to love and forgive his enemies. Now, now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that Jesus, there aren't times in Jesus' ministry where he stood up and, and, and spoke. Very strong words. I began to think about that this morning. And and he made very defensible arguments, not dogmatic assertions. And he didn't attack people per se. He attacked the problems. But he did say some pretty harsh things. Would you agree with that? To the Pharisees in particular? I mean, I wrote down some of those things uh, right here. Uh, Jesus' strong words. John 8, he basically said to the Pharisees, your mama sleeps with the devil. Yeah, in other words, he, was, he said, you are of your father the devil. I mean, he's, that's, uh, that's pretty harsh. And then in Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites, blind fools, whitewashed tombs, you bunch of snakes, I mean, you brood of vipers. So he he used strong language. I'm not saying that we're not talking about just this passive aggression kind of thing. We're not going to do anything. There's appropriate times to speak up. But know the difference between dogmatic assertions, defensible arguments, attacking the problem versus attacking the person. Know the difference between all of that. And you you can see that being lived out in Jesus' life. So here's the next point on your notes. Oh, by the way, Jesus did cleanse the temple too, didn't he? He was pretty upset over that one. So there's appropriate expressions of, uh, of righteous indignation in all of that. Just, just keep that in mind. So, so here's the next point in your notes. The gospel gives us the capacity to have personal peace in the face of persecution and exercise our power. Here's the point. Exercise our power, our status, money, and influence to love and forgive our enemies. But the bottom line, what should be our attitude? Well, we know this over and over again. Jesus said we are to love our enemies. We're to love our enemies. It tells us in Romans 12, 14 through 21, don't become like the evil that is being done to you, but what are we to do? We're to overcome evil with what? Love. With good. Yeah, with love. With, yeah, exactly. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now here's, let's talk about, let's, let's, let's define tolerance here, Okay? Tolerance isn't agreeing that all beliefs are valid. That's not tolerance. That's what our world wants us to believe. That's what American culture wants us to believe. Oh, just, just agree that all beliefs are valid. That's not tolerance. Tolerance isn't agreeing that all beliefs are valid. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. That's tolerance. How should our beliefs... Let me say that again, How should our beliefs lead us to treat people who disagree with us? We serve a man who died for his enemies. What does that tell you? I mean, our attitudes should be different how we interact with people. We don't, we don't respond in the way that they're coming after us, as we see in the life of Jesus. It's totally different. No. Let's talk about, uh, there's, some, there's been a lot of research about the first century church. First century church turned the world upside down. The Roman world had an unbelievable impact. Rodney Starks, historian, sociologist, wrote a book, The Rise of Christianity. And basically his question is, how did a tiny and obscure messianic movement from the edge of the Roman empire dislodge classical paganism and become the dominant faith of Western civilization? How did they, they do that? We have some characteristics from that first century church which should be part of who we are as Christians here's the first one and it was relational inclusivity or we can even say racial but it's relational inclusivity and intimacy created a culture for conversion and discipleship number 2 radical generosity caring for the sick widows and orphans instead of fleeing to the countryside to escape the all too frequent calamities of their day Christians didn't run for problems. They, they engaged in the problems and tried to become a part of the solution. Here's number three, moral integrity. They stood against adultery, abortion, and infanticide, killing infants. And, and what you need to understand is that in this ancient Roman world, um, The ancient Roman world was not kind to women and children. Married men could sleep with with other women and the unwanted offspring of these unions were usually aborted or simply left to die from exposure after death. Christians spoke out against all of these practices, exhorting the followers of Jesus to remain faithful in marriage and to care for the most vulnerable members of society, the little babies, Some Christians would even rescue abandoned babies, raising them as their own. All of these beliefs and actions led to higher birth and adoption rates. So, early church, relational inclusivity and intimacy created a culture of conversion, discipleship, radical generosity, moral integrity, and then a theology of love. Love God with all your heart, love your neighbors yourself. And so, in the rise of Christianity, Stark does the math, and shows that a social movement numbering only 1,000 people in 40 AD, first century church, could easily grow to 25 or even 35 million by the fourth century despite all the challenges of the ancient world if the members of the movement lived according to the practices spelled out from what we just talked about here. Doing so leads to very tangible demographic results, 40% growth per decade for hundreds of years. So you want to have an impact... Here's here's the point next point on your notes our aim must be more than a better society for every race class age culture for all better society for all every race class age culture but to faithfully and contagiously use our power our status money influence for the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the transformation of people's lives that's what we're to be about that, that will have a greater impact on our politics than anything else. Um, Romans 1 and 1 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the what? It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there's power in the gospel? Do you believe that the gospel can transform people's lives? What do you guys think? Yes. Okay, yes, I do, I'm convinced of it. I've given my life to that. I'm convinced of it. That'll change politics unlike anything else. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 talks about letting our light shine before men so that they can see our good deeds and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Listen, you can't get spiritual results from political means. You can't get spiritual results from political means. How many are familiar with the guy by the name of Charles Colson? guys familiar with him? You know who I'm talking about? Let me... Help you understand who this guy is. He's passed on now. He's with the Lord. But he was part of President Nixon's administration. He served time in prison over the Watergate scandal. Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say Watergate scandal? Okay. He encountered God in prison, became the, the very, began the very successful prison fellowship ministry, which is worldwide. Listen to what he said. And I quote, that's one of the weaknesses of the evangelical movement today, that it is so obsessed with politics. It believes that there's got to be a political solution to everything. You don't change a culture by passing laws. You change a culture by changing people's habits. That's why the gospel is so central to the possibilities of cultural reformation in American life. So what, what should we be, be, be busy doing? Living out the gospel. Living out the gospel. Proclamation, demonstration of the gospel. Now, last point here, personal answer. What changes our actions and our attitudes? What is it that changes us? And I think that we see this in, in verse 25. This is the transformation, verse 25. He released the man, Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will to be crucified. This is the beautiful, this is a beautiful picture of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, a frequent theme of scripture. And I gave you all the verses there. This is where it's throughout scripture, substitutionary atonement, substitutionary atonement. You need to understand what that means. And and I, I can't, Help but know this from personal experience. A lot of people that claim to be Christians, they don't understand what substitutionary atonement is all about. And they can maybe quote it. They can talk about it. But I'm kind of wondering, do you even get it? Because if you get it, and if it gets a hold of you, you're not the same. Uh, We're going to talk about next weekend about spiritual blindness. And I think there's a lot of spiritual blindness that's in the church these days. And so I was thinking about changing the, the title from spiritual blindness to do you get it? Do you get it? And that's what we're gonna talk about. Next week, we're gonna talk about the crucifixion of Christ and understanding substitutionary atonement. And my, my question is, do you get it? Because I'm telling you, it's more than information. It's transformation. It will totally transform your life. And so, uh, I gave you a bunch of verses that talk about this substitutionary atonement. Frequent theme in scripture. The substitutionary atonement explains how Jesus reconciles sinners to a holy God. Jesus is not only the substitute for Barabbas by taking his place on the cross, but ours as well. This is a beautiful picture of substitutionary atonement. At the very center of Christian understanding of salvation is not a man who gets on a horse and goes off and takes power and saves us, but instead it's about a man who willingly gives up his power, transferring our death to himself and his life to us. See, see this is about the guilty. This is, a, this is about putting the guilty where the innocent should be and the innocent where the guilty should be. Punish the innocent and treat the guilty like he's innocent. That's substitution. And the concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. Here's your next fill in the blank. So the essence of sin is me... Barabbas, substituting myself for God. So when you think sin, think of you taking God's place. What's the essence of sin? It's, it's you, you thinking you're smarter than God. <laughs> That's so funny, isn't it? It really is, because I, I know you. And uh, you're not that smart, okay? You're, not, I'm, I'm, you're smart, and you're probably smarter than me, but you're not that smart. You're not as smart as God, okay? He's a whole lot smarter. Oh, by the way... He loves you and no one, no one has ever loved you more. And so in that context of his his infinite wisdom and perfect love for you and you think, you actually think that you're gonna find a better life apart from the creator? What the heck are you thinking? You're deceived. I've got friends out there chasing all kinds of stuff and I'm thinking, man, you're not thinking. You're deceived and they are. They're deceived. They're thinking that they're going to be happier by pursuing something in creation over and above the creator. It's not going to happen. They're taking God's place. They're stepping into the role of God. I can figure this out. I'm going to be happier if I could. I do my own thing. No, you're not. That's going to be short-lived. You're going to take a beating over that. And so that's the essence of sin. But oh, I love, I love really the essence of salvation. The essence of salvation is God, Jesus, substituting himself for me. Because I was eternally, I was headed to be eternally separated from God. And, and, and Jesus stepped in for me. And died for me. See, the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins. And all who repent and believe have everlasting life. That's yours right now, today, through Jesus. It's amazing. There's nothing better than that. He took all of your sin. And you have all of his righteousness. And you have everything you need through through God in Christ Jesus. Why would we ever respond to anybody with ugliness? It's because we're, we're not living in the reality of what we have in him. That's why we would respond with people with ugliness and not, love, and not know how to love our enemies is because we don't understand what he's done for us. So the essence of salvation is God, Jesus substituting himself from me. Jesus died that we might live. He was bound that we might be free. This is the answer to the question, how do you get power to be the agents of social change the way the early Christians were? See, the early Christians didn't just look to Jesus as an example because that's crushing. You can't ever live up to his standard. But supernaturally, he can begin to work in you to begin to bring the transformation. So he's not just an example. He's beyond that. He's your substitute, and he begins to work supernaturally in our lives, and that's what begins to transform us. Here's the last point in your notes. Jesus gave his life for me, so I'll give my life For you, I will give my life for you. Substitutionary atonement changes you into a a radical person of social change, of social change. Jesus gave his life for me, so I'll give my life for you. I'm gonna finish with a story here. It's it's really one of my favorite stories. It's a classic story from our game of life. I'm gonna share that with you in just a moment, and then we'll wrap things up. But let me just say this, is that um, desert breeze wouldn't exist nor would we have the impact that we're having in our community right now if it wasn't for the, the literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are living out of this. Jesus gave his life for me, so I'll give my life for you. The hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are giving of their time and their talent and their finances, their treasure regularly to do what we do consistently right here in the community to get the gospel of Jesus Christ out to more and more people. Now, let me share with you this story. Um, it's, It's Ernest Gordon. It's from his memoirs. He was a British soldier in World War II He was captured by the Japanese and he was made to work with thousands of others on what was called the Death Railroad, which was a railroad along the valley of the Kwai River in Thailand. Classic movie, uh, Bridge Over River Kwai. You guys familiar with that That movie? Just like four of us, okay. (laughs) And so during World War II, POWs were made to work on that railroad. The conditions were so awful that one to 2,000 prisoners died for every five miles that was built. It got so bad that Ernest Gordon, in his memoirs, said that the men were all at each other's throats. They had gone back to the law of the jungle, and he said and I quote here from his memoirs, death was everywhere and as conditions worsened, our lives became poisoned by selfishness, lies, hate, and fear. Formerly, we had huddled together because of our fears, believing there was safety in numbers. We had still shown some consideration for one another. Now that was gone, completely swept away. Existence, had become so miserable, the odds so heavy against us, that nothing mattered except to survive. We lived by the rule of the jungle, read in tooth and claw, the evolutionary law of the survival of the fittest. It was a case of, I look out for myself and to to hell with everyone else. That was their attitude. Everybody was his own keeper and all the restraints of morality were gone. So, So keep in mind, that's the community. Of, of soldiers, and, uh, and one afternoon, something happened. A shovel was missing at the end of, of the day. The officer in charge became enraged. He demanded that the missing shovel be produced or else But when no one in the squadron volunteered that they had taken the shovel, the officer took his gun out and threatened to kill everyone, every one of them on the spot. Suddenly, one man stepped forward. I took it, he said. The officer put away his gun, picked up a shovel, and beat the man to death on the spot. But at the second tool check, this time, no shovel was missing. There had actually been a miscount at the first check. The word spread like wildfire through the whole camp. An innocent man was willing to die to save everyone else. The incident had a huge effect. We began to treat each other like brothers. Another man was caught trading with the local people the tithe for medicines for a dying comrade and was sentenced to death. But he submitted to it, reading from a little Bible cheering up the chaplain right before his execution. Death was still with us, no doubt about that, but we were being slowly freed from its destructive grip. What happened? What happened in this story? The sacrificial love of one man giving his life for the rest changed a jungle into a community, and that was just a human being. Jesus Christ gave his life for you. He stepped forward, was beaten into the ground to save us from our sins. And when that gets a hold of your heart, oh my goodness, it changes you. It changes you. It will change your marriage. It will change your home. It will change your life. It will change your politics and how you respond to people. On your way out today, I encourage you to pick up one of these Advent uh, booklets. Here's what uh, what we want to do is, um, and by the way, if, if you don't, if we've been running out of these things. Last week, they had to go print a bunch more just from our crowd last night. We had a big crowd last night, and so uh, if you don't get one, you can go online, and where it says our Christmas Eve services, if you'll hit that, it'll take you to a back page where you can download this And uh, so if you get it or you don't get it or you lose it, you can go to that. But here's what I want you to understand is uh, Luke 2.10 kind of helps to summarize what Christmas is all about. Behold, I, I bring you good news of, of great joy. Not small, not modest, great, great joy. And I believe Christmas is the dawning of indescribable and indestructible joy. And yet too often we can go through this season and miss it. And so what we're wanting to do is that we know that hearts... Hearts are not inflamed by empty heads, and so we want to fill your heads with a lot of truths of how glorious and grand our Savior is, and so every weekend service in December, we will be celebrating Advent, as you saw in this service, and we're inviting you to start today, it starts today until Christmas, start reading these daily devotionals. And uh, we want your hearts to be filled up with the beauty and the glory of Christ so that your, your head will be filled up so your heart will be inflamed with this uh, indescribable, indestructible joy, maybe unlike you've ever experienced before during this season. And so let me, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. I'm going to pray in regards to our politics here, and then I'm going to pray a, a prayer in regards to this Advent season And so, Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your truth. And no matter who the president is or the politicians or the policies are, Jesus is king. Jesus is king of the universe. And so let our actions and attitudes be less about the outcome of elections and political decisions and more about being God's elect people in whom the gates of hell won't prevail against us. And that that we know that your glory shines brightest, It shines the brightest in us when we are the happiest in you, especially when it is the darkest. And so, so may we let our light shine before men so that they can see our good deeds and glorify you, our Father, who is in heaven. And we pray during this Christmas season as we gather weekly to celebrate Advent and reflect daily through these Advent devotionals, awaken and stir up our affections for the greatest wonder of all, the arrival and work and the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God in this world world. And may it give us a new taste of the indescribable and indestructible joy that can only be found in our Savior Jesus. We pray these things in his beautiful and holy name. And everyone said, amen. I love you guys. Have a great week.